Thank you, everyone. I think uh, in the first service, Dave, if, we, uh, if the sermon doesn't work right away, we could use your filler. That was some pretty good stuff. I appreciate it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for our kids' ministry. Thank you for the work that they are doing in helping these kids come to know you, love you, and serve you as their king. Thank you for the people who minister week after week so that these kids might know who Jesus is. God, as we come together to hear who, what you want to say to us this morning, may our minds be open to understand this passage. May our eyes be open so that we might see you more clearly. May our ears be open to hear what you want to say specifically to us. And may our hands be open in turn to respond and to glorify you. God, I ask that my words would fall down so that yours would be lifted up. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us, if not all of us, long to be accepted. We may not care what everybody thinks of us as long as somebody accepts us. One of the running jokes around the office, perhaps you've heard it before, is what exactly is Dave's job title here? Depending on who Pastor Mel is talking to, my job title is constantly changing. If he's talking to a family with a young family, he'll say, you know, this is our pastor to young families. If he's talking to one of his pastor friends, he'll say, this is my associate pastor. If he's talking to somebody who wants to be involved in group life, he'll say, this is our pastor of group life. Two weeks ago, he was talking to our church bookkeeper, and it was about noon, and his phone rang, and he looked at our bookkeeper, and he said, oh, that's, that's my wife calling. He picks up the phone, and it was me. And he looked at her, and he said, look, it's my work wife. So I have all sorts of titles. It's getting very broad and rather ridiculous. If you're curious, my official title is Pastor of Community Life. And over the last couple of weeks, a number of people have come up to me and said, Dave, how can I get engaged? How can I be more involved when it comes uh, to membership? to serving, to being involved in group life. In a word, they want to be accepted. I hope that you enjoy our sermons here at at Ellerslie. I hope that you enjoy the worship here at Ellerslie. I hope you enjoy the youth ministry that we have. But on Sunday mornings, this big group time is only one wing of an airplane. And it takes two wings to fly. The other wing of that airplane is serving is being involved in group life and being involved in small groups. And unless you're part of that, it's harder to feel that acceptance. Showing up isn't enough. We want to be accepted. Every Sunday I stand up in front of a group of people. Perhaps I'm preaching like I am today. Perhaps I'm giving announcements. Perhaps I'm leading a class. But whatever I'm doing, I have to do all this prep work in my office. It's rather solitary. And so on Sunday mornings when I show up, I see the band up on the platform and they're having a good time and they're laughing and they're prepping and they're enjoying themselves. I go into the auditorium and it's the same thing. They're loving that jam session, getting ready for Sunday morning. And I've decided I want to be a part of the worship team. Now you might think, oh, well, that's good for you. There's lots of pastors. But I have no musical talent. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. I have no ear for sound. I don't have a clue what to do. And my dad always brought me up and he said, Dave, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. So my solution, the tambourine. (laughs) So listen to me, I I don't think Colton's in the room, so we can't tell him, we got to keep this a secret. I'm not going to show up on Wednesday or Thursday night for either of our worship practices. I'm going to show up on Sunday morning. And they're going to think I'm doing the regular kind of pastoral thing where I show up and I talk to them and have a good time and then I'm just going to get on the platform and I'm going to go around a little bit and once no one kicks me off the stage, I'm going to add a little bit more rhythmic dance to my moves and I'm going to join in and see what happens. 
And then I'm going to think, you know what? I'm a soccer player. We've got to get a good boot kick in here, and we'll just get really involved. And I think it's going to be really, really well received. Or not. What do you think Colton's response is going to be? Dave, we like you, some of us, but you need to be invited. You can't just show up to, and then, listen, think you're going to be accepted. Think about your closest friends and the depth of conversations that happen there. It doesn't happen overnight. You spend time going to movies together, to restaurants together, being involved in each other's homes and involved in each other's lives, and you think, now I have a friend. If you're married, think about how your courting started. You didn't just walk up to her and say, hey, we're going to get married. Or, hey, how you doing? <laughs> it's a process. There's that wooing stage. There's the dates. There's meeting each other's friends and family. My oldest son starts kindergarten next year, and my wife and I are praying that he would get accepted to the local school that we'd like him to go to. Most of us, if not all of us, long to be accepted. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Mark chapter 1. We're in Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you and would like a hard copy of the Bible, the Connect booth has extra Bibles. We would be happy to give that to you. If you have a phone or a tablet with you, by all means, follow along on your device or download it at bible.com app. Sometimes the Bible can be an intimidating book and you go, I don't know where to turn to. Thankfully, it has a table of contents. In that table of contents, you'll find the book of Mark. The large numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. We're in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Mark is sometimes called the action-packed gospel, proof that ADD existed even in the first century. The average Bible passage uh, chapter, pardon me, has about two or three passages in it. Mark chapter 1, depending on how you break it up, seven to nine different passages. Mark's account of Jesus begins with a prophet calling out in the desert, I will baptize you with water, a symbol of repentance for the washing away of sins, but one will come after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. No sooner does he say this than Jesus enters the scene. You can see it in verse 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Jesus, by Satan, sorry. The passage that Pastor Mel talked about last week wrapped up with this big idea. Jesus is the leader that we're longing for. This is where we pick up. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not just as a teacher of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. The news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Here's our first part of the outline this morning. Jesus is a man of authority. Let's go back to the rather ridiculous illustration of me bringing a tambourine to worship practice and thinking I can just jump on stage. Some of the musicians might go, yep, that's exactly what we need. But Selmer and Traditions, Colton and Renew might look at my performance and say, no, Dave, 
On Sunday mornings, we strive for excellence. It's one of our values here. We want to get better. And you have to come to rehearsal. You have to come to auditions just to be a part of the rehearsal. Colton is the one who has the authority to make that call. Take another look at verse 22, and you'll read, the people are amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not just as teachers of the law. You might look at this and go, okay, a teacher of the law, some of your translations might use the word scribe. It's probably a geeky job nobody really wants. Couldn't be further from the truth. The Jewish people looked up to these scribes, to these teachers of the law. These men had an incredibly important role. They were experts in the Old Testament. Most of them, if not all of them, had memorized the entire first five books of the Bible. When the growth of synagogues began to take place, they also became teachers, and having memorized the law, they also became legal jurists. To put it in another way, these teachers of the law are research professors, teachers and moralists, as well as civil lawyers, all rolled into one. And when Jesus enters the scene, they look at Jesus and say, this man has authority. Think about the strength and the power of which Jesus must have taught so that these incredibly educated men were, thinking, were thought of as people who didn't. To put it, um, Jesus doesn't just know the word of God, he is the word of God. No wonder he came with such authority. Here is God made flesh, all-knowing, all-powerful Son of God standing before a room of people showing the authority over the Scriptures, the authority over the spirits. This demon-possessed man just couldn't handle it anymore, and he blurts out in front of all who are present, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I don't know how many of you have heard a demon-possessed person speak before, but they don't sound like a 10-year-old girl. This isn't a, what do you want from us, Jesus of Nazareth? Somehow that doesn't evoke fear in all those who are in attendance. I've heard demons speak on a couple of occasions, and they want to scare you. They're loud, they're guttural, they're violent. Looking at verse 25, be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. Authority over the scriptures. Authority over the spirits. The people are amazed. You don't have to hang out with me very long to know that I love sports. My oldest son is named after my favorite soccer player. I can't believe my wife went for it. <laughs> when I think of the best soccer teams I've played on, it's all been with great coaches. Coaches who have played the game, coaches who understand tactics, coaches who could take in the all-stars and say, listen to me, this is how we're going to play the game, and if you listen, this is how we're going to win. If you're not a sports fan, you may not be aware that today is one of the most exciting days in the NFL. It's the conference championships. Hopefully Kansas City beats the evil New England Patriots. <laughs> of the four remaining teams, it is arguably the four best coaches in the league. Every position is coached with excellence. Every play designed with brilliance. Every call from a master tactician. Players, when they move to Bill Belichick's team or Andy Reid or Sean Payton, are saying, this 
man has such a grasp of football, such an understanding, no wonder everybody gets in line. He has authority. People listen. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, you'll notice in verses 22 and in verses 27 are the exact same words. People were amazed at Jesus' authority, authority over the scriptures, authority over the spirits. Moving on to the second part of our passage, verses 29 to 31. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. We've just looked at two miracles, and they couldn't be more different. A demon-possessed man in a crowd perhaps like this, Jesus yells out sternly, be quiet, and casts him out in front of a public a group of people. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, look what Jesus says to Simon's mother-in-law. Nothing. He doesn't even utter a word. He just takes her hand and helps her up. Jesus is no traveling healer with a shtick that he performs at the local county fair. He preaches, he delivers, he heals, however is best in the moment, and people start to hear about it. Our passage continues. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. There's a phrase that sometimes is used to talk about Jesus. It goes like this. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, our king. If you haven't heard the phrase before, here's what it means. Prophet brings God to the people. God speaks to him, and he brings it to the people. And Jesus, God himself, has come to the people and shown the authority of the scriptures. A priest does the opposite thing. He brings the people to God. By having authority over sickness, Jesus gives them a picture of what heaven will look like, a world in which sickness and rot and decay have absolutely no part of God's kingdom. The role of a king is to bring God's rule to all of people. By having authority over the spirits, Jesus shows the kingdom of God is advancing and he is restoring earth to the way it was initially intended to be. Authority over the scriptures, authority over the spirits, authority over sickness. But how will this man authority wield his power? Obviously by increasing his social media presence, right? Check out my recent sermon on iTunes. Look at my Twitter followers. Hashtag cast it out, preach it out. That's what I would go with. Imagine the Instagram story that could be used after an event like that. Let's see what really happens. Verses 35 to 37. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. If you have your Bibles in front of you, look at that response in verse 38. Perfect, Jesus replied. This is exactly what I was waiting for. Get the best manager money can buy. John, I want you to go into the public square, tell everybody what I'm going to be. Simon, call Channel 2 News. We want this blitzed across all the radio stations. He doesn't do that, does he? What's Jesus' real response? Let us go somewhere else. We'll go to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. 
Here's this man of authority. Here's this man of incredible power. Here's this man with a huge following, people seeking him out. And what does he do? He switches places. In speaking about this passage, Timothy Keller writes, Jesus is more concerned with the quality of response than the quantity of crowd. Timothy Keller, if you haven't heard his name before, is a brilliant man. Friends of mine call him the Protestant Pope. He's not just talking about this celebrity culture. He's living it out. He's a sought-out speaker. He's a well-respected author. It would be easy for Keller to bask in this praise of this place we live in of celebrity pastor. And yet in everything he does, he fights against it. The church where he was uh, most recently working at, he's now retired, has uh, three preaching pastors. For sake of ease to follow along, let's call them Dave, Mel, and Tim. And so Timothy Keller, along with Dave and Mel, get together on Wednesday afternoons to go through the passage that they're going to preach on that Sunday. They all bring their ideas, they bring their best illustrations, their best quotes, they recognize what the area is that they'd like to focus on, and they talk about it together, and then they each go and they write their own message. I don't know how it's determined which location they preach at, but every week, nobody knows who's going to be where. He absolutely fights against this idea of celebrity pastor. In South Edmonton, it might be Dave, in Mill Woods, it might be Mel, and Tim is at Leduc. Next week, it could be exactly the same or completely different, but he wanted his church congregation to understand, this isn't about me, this is about the gospel. Other well-known pastors who I'll choose not to name regularly open new satellite campuses. They rent a school, buy an old grocery store, turn it into an auditorium, and up pops a church. They blitz that community, that city, that town a month in advance, telling about what's going to happen, what's going to take place. And the first Sunday there, four, five, seven hundred people show up. And then they talk about it. We had 700 people at our launch. I'm not making this up. My brother-in-law used to work at a decent-sized town. It wasn't a city, it was a town. And one of these things happened. It was a mass exodus from all the other churches in the community. Jesus is more concerned with the quality of response than the quantity of the crowd. When Jesus is traveling around Galilee, he wants people to respond to the message, not the miracles. The miracles aren't the message. Jesus is the message. The kingdom of God is the message, and that is what he wants people to see and to understand. If Jesus' desired outcome was this huge, massive following who are just in awe of the miracles he can perform, he would have stayed in Galilee. He would have told everybody where he was going, and he would have entered Jerusalem with a huge following. That's not what he did. Jesus' plan is for life change, for people to believe he's the son of God, come to save the world. The kingdom of God has arrived. And he's here to reclaim what's rightfully his. Mark continues in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Leprosy in the first century was basically a death sentence. If you have a skin disease and it won't go away, you become a social outcast. You either live outside the town in solitude or outside the town in a leper colony. Either way, you have to beg for your food. For the sake of the common good, anyone who had an infectious disease needed to live a life this way because they didn't want the rest of the community to receive that same infectious disease. This is what is written in the Jewish law 
by Moses. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Verses 41 and 42. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. I want you to stop and think about what just took place here. For 1,500 years since Moses wrote the book of Exodus and Leviticus, if you touched or were touched by a person with leprosy, you became unclean. But what does Jesus do? He breaks that mold. When he reaches out and touches him, the leper becomes clean. It's the great reversal. Everything old is being made new. Everything broken is being restored. Every sickness is being healed. The kingdom of, of God has arrived, and that's the message Jesus wants people to understand. Continuing on in verses 43 and 44, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for the cleansing as a testimony to them. It's difficult to see this in our English translation, but the tone of voice, what Jesus is doing here, how he's talking to the leper, is the same way he's talking to the man who is demon-possessed. To say it in a different way, Jesus saw the disobedience in the man. He chose to heal him anyway. What does the now-healed leper do? Instead, he went and began to talk freely, spreading the news, and as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Do you see what happened? Jesus and the leper switched places. The leper was a social outcast. Because of his skin disease, he wasn't allowed to enter the city, and if he did, he had to cover his mouth and he had to yell unclean so that people knew he was there. He went freely that day talking to people, telling them about Jesus, the miracle worker. He became a local celebrity. The leper was cleansed, and he's now warmly accepted. But what happens to Jesus? Jesus, who had received a following of his own, could no longer walk in cities, could no longer go where he pleased. He had to stay outside, where people didn't know where he was, where people couldn't find him. Jesus and the leper switched places. And as we close chapter 1 of Mark, the great reversal is already taking place, foreshadowing what will eventually come at the end of the book where Jesus takes our place and we take his. We're starting to see the beauty of a large passage of Scripture. It begins with this man of authority, authority over Scriptures, authority over spirits, authority over Sabbath, and yet instead of using it for self-promotion, he uses it to switch places with us. What does it mean? Everyone is welcome. Chapter 2, 1 to 5. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their, face, their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, 
Your sins are forgiven. Try to put yourself in the place of that paralytic. You've heard great news about this Jesus, this miracle worker, this man who is doing miracles and performing incredible feats wherever he goes. Did you hear? He helped a blind man see. Did you hear? There was a man who had leprosy. Jesus touched him. He was immediately healed. Did you hear that there was a group in a synagogue and a man was possessed by a demon and he yelled out and immediately Jesus cast the demon from him? He's excited. So he looks at four of his close friends and he said, will you carry me to Jesus? And his four friends, good guys, say absolutely we will. You're that paralytic. You're on that mat. You arrive at this home. And there's so many people, they're flooding out the door, they're sitting in windowsills, and you can't get anywhere close to Jesus. And your friends are like, don't worry about it. We got this. And they walk up the side of the house. They go up to the roof. The roofs those days are made of straw and mud and clay. And they start digging through the roof. And they dig some more. And this hole big enough to be lowered down in a stretcher takes place. And Jesus, this miracle worker, this son of God, stops what he's doing as rubble starts falling on top of him. You're lowered down right in front of him. And he looks at you and says, your sins are forgiven. What are you thinking right now? You know what I'm thinking? That's great. I can't walk. Heal my legs. I can't walk. But Jesus is going for something deeper. This is actually an incredibly compassionate act. Jesus knows that if he heals him, that doesn't take away all of his other problems. Think about it this way. How many of you are longing for a new phone, a new car, a new house? You want a better camera on your car? You want heated seats? Uh, pardon me. <laughs> well, you never know. You could put a camera dash in your car, too. That'll work. On your phone, you want heated seats in your car. You just want to have a nicer place. But when you get it, how long before that glimmer runs out? A couple weeks? Maybe a month? It's not because there's anything wrong with that brand new phone. You've talked about it, you shared with your friends the good deal you got, you bought a nice case. You love your car, you've been washing it regularly, you're gonna keep it nice and clean. You even invited a few friends over to your housewarming party. But eventually that shine goes away. Jesus will eventually heal that man's legs, but he wants to go deeper. He wants to engage his heart. The teachers of the law, the scribes, the people we talked about earlier are furious, verses 6 and 7. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're exactly right. Imagine three guys hanging out. They're in junior high. They're having a good time. They're getting a heated argument about the NFL games tonight. And Tom and Mark and Harry are all having a good time. But things get a little personal. And so Tom winds up and he just punches Mark right in the face. Mark's nose starts bleeding. He's like, why, why did you do that? And Harry stops in and says, don't worry, Mark. I got this. Tom, you're forgiven. <laughs> Mark might look at Harry and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't get to do that. And he's exactly right. 
Tom didn't sin against Harry. Tom sinned against Mark. And the Pharisees understand this. There's only two people who get to forgive, the person who the wrong was happened to and God himself. By Jesus telling the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he's telling everybody who is present, I am God. Jesus has the power to give us what we want, and in verse 11, he'll eventually heal the man's legs. But that's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And whenever we, de- whenever we deny the goodness of God, whenever we think that the enemy's lie is better and that this soon-to-be pleasure, this thing that I want, which I know isn't right, what I really want to say to this person, which isn't right, takes us away from the goodness of God, and we've sinned against God. We need more. We need Jesus. Our story has just taken a gigantic step forward. Jesus has shown us that he is the man of authority. He has authority over scriptures. He has authority over spirits, authority over sickness. Now he's showing us something more. I, Jesus, have authority to forgive sins. He's also shown us he's willing to switch places. Jesus was willing to be an outcast so that the leper might be accepted. And here's the great reversal. He is willing to become sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. Everyone welcome. Everybody accepted. Picking up in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out to be beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. Everyone's welcome. Everyone is accepted. But Dave, you have no idea what I've forgiven. Dave, you have no idea the skeletons in my closet. Forgiven. Dave, you don't know what I've said to my family, my sister, my parents, my kids, my wife. Forgiven. Dave, you have no idea what I'm thinking of doing. You have no idea what goes on through. Forgiven. Here's what you get when you get Jesus. The acceptance you've been longing for. Jesus is the only person who has the authority to switch places with us that we might be accepted. Give me some of that. Give me more Jesus. There's a song that we often sing by Chris Tomlin. Here are the lyrics. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, might die for me? In Jesus, we receive the acceptance that we've been longing for, and he's the only person with the authority to do that. So as a church, we've got a lot to live up to. A friend of mine doesn't attend this church. Her and I were talking uh, over Christmas break. 
when we were talking about this idea of acceptance. And my friend has had a rough life. Uh, she has, uh, she's white, her ex-husband is black. Uh, nasty divorce, bad dude, two little girls, uh, mulatto. And I asked her, I said, when you go to a church, and as a white girl, you're holding these two black girls' hands, and you walk in, what do you do if people don't receive you well? And she looked at me and she said, Dave, I will take my girls and I'll turn right around and we won't even make it to the auditorium. I'll have nothing with that church and I won't go back. A restaurateur by the name of Danny Meyer says that food is only 49% of eating in one of his fine establishments. The other 51% is hospitality and this intrigued me when I heard him talk. In other words, he says, if you sit down and enjoy the best meal you have ever tasted, but the hospitality is poor, we've failed. We have not received a passing grade. Now, I think my food is really good, but I think my hospitality is excellent. And people can copy food, but good luck copying my hospitality. You might like the sermons better somewhere else. You might like the worship better somewhere else. You might like our kids' ministry better. <laughs> Forget it. That's impossible. <laughs> Would you join us, every single one of you, in making this the most hospitable, most welcoming, most accepting environment we possibly can? I'm not talking about joining Lisa and the First Impression teams, although if, you're well, if you'd like to, please do. We'd love to have you. I'm talking about making this place warm, filling this place with love, talking to people you haven't met yet and asking them how they're doing, how they got connected, what brings them to Ellerslie, inviting them to join your small group, inviting them to serve with you in children's ministry or on the worship team, making this place so warm, so welcoming, so accepting, that people would never want to leave. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I thank you for the privilege of preaching a larger passage so that we can see what you're doing and how you're operating on a bigger scale. And God, it's beautiful to see your Son come with that authority authority over the spirits, authority over sickness, authority over sin, so that you will switch places with us. That you will take on sin who had no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Father, forgive us when we have not been as accepting as we should be. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might encourage, that we might love, that we might embrace every individual who walks into our church building. And that we would do it for the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.